Today's reading is from 1 Chronicles, chapter 28, 1 to 10, and 20 to 21. David assembled all the leaders of Israel in Jerusalem, the leaders of the tribes, the leaders of the divisions in the king's service, the commanders of the thousands and the commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of all the property and cattle of the king and his sons, along with the court officials, the fighting men, and all the brave warriors. Then King David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my brothers and my people. It was in my heart to build a house as a resting place for the ark of the Lord's covenant and as a footstool for our God. I had made preparations to build, but God said to me, you are not to build a house for my name because you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me out of all of my father's household to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader, and from the house of Judah, my father's household, and from my father's sons, he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. And out of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the Lord's kingdom over Israel. He said to me, your son Solomon is the one who is to build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he perseveres in keeping my commands and my ordinances as he is today. So now in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and follow all the commands of the Lord your God so that you may possess this good land and leave it as an inheritance to your descendants forever. As for you, Solomon, my son, Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands the intention of every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Realize now that the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Then David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous and do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He won't leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the Lord's house is finished. Here are the divisions of the priests and the Levites for all the service of God's house. Every willing man of any skill will be at your disposal for the work, and the leaders and all the people are at your every command. This is the word of the Lord. And would you take a space just to be silent, just to offer to God the burdens that you walk in with right now, knowing that he's here with you. God is present and active. If you wish, you can open your hands to God as a sign of just surrendering all that you carry. Our Father, would you please speak to us now and please not allow me to be in the way of what you might want to say to your dear beloved. We ask this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It's great to see you guys. We are beginning or entering into the fall season. My name is Al. If we haven't already met, I have the privilege of speaking on most Sundays. And um, we are coming to, as Nia said, the end of the series on the life of David. 
An article appeared in The Guardian a few years back that was titled, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. It was based on the book by an Australian nurse who spent several years caring for patients during the last 12 weeks of their life. What do you think would be at the top of the top regrets list for those who are dying? We'll put it on the screen, because according to the author, these are them. Number one, I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I had the courage to express my feelings more. I wish I'd stayed in touch with friends. I wish I'd let myself be happier. Why do these kinds of deathbed regrets so deeply resonate with you? I know for me, there's a huge reason why. William B. Irvine, in his book, A Guide to the Good Life, captures it well. I don't recommend the book. The quote is the best part of it, in my opinion. He says, some are disturbed because they fear what might come after death. Many more, though, are disturbed because they fear they have mislived that they have, that is, lived without having attained the things that are truly valuable in life. And that's a phrase, man, mislived. That's a powerful phrase that's actually a non-word. It's so powerful because I'm willing to bet that most of us don't want to mislive. We want to live a life of meaning, of purpose, a life that impacts others beyond us. And the reason why people tend to mislive, the reason why I tend to mislive, is because I oftentimes don't live from backwards living forward, or I don't live with the end in mind. Stephen Covey, the famed uh, business consultant, says you should always start with the end in mind. Recently, I was asked to lead a retreat for a large group of men in San Francisco. And I started putting this retreat together. I've kind of done some of these before, and I just immediately went to work thinking, I want to do this, I want to do this, here's what I want to see happen. And a friend of mine asked me as I was frantically working through all these pieces, he said, have you you asked the leaders what they hope the results are of the retreat? And I was like, oh, leadership 101, how come I didn't pass that class? So I literally sent an email out this morning before on my way here, hey, what is it that you're hoping for as a result of this weekend? And from there, I'm gonna build it out. Many of us don't know what the results are that we want at the very end when we're on our deathbed like David is right here. And so therefore, we're frantically running about saying, I'm gonna add this layer, this layer, this relationship, this pursuit, and we're unknowing how To live, we're at risk of misliving, and I want to really live, but I find like Paul in Romans 7, I find myself falling straight back into patterns that lead me in the wrong direction. And the question I want to ask is, how do I live with intentionality? How do I live well? That's David. That's what David's doing here on his deathbed. He's made massive mistakes in his life. We've witnessed many of them. His sin has caused suffering for him and for his family and for his children and untold amounts of people. And yet, in the New Testament, he's still given this moniker, this name. David is a man after what? God's own heart. 
How is it that he has this legacy even though he's filled with all of these flaws and now as he's breathing his final breaths with his family and friends and soldiers and servants around him, including his young son Solomon, who's going to take the throne in his place and take all of the building material that David has amassed and acquired over the years to build a sacred space for Israel, for God's people. That's Solomon's role now. Young man, massive task ahead of him. The problem is Solomon, as I said, is inexperienced. This son is young, and he's charged with stewarding resources beyond his skill set, so he's scared. And he'll take any word that his father will give him in order to not mislive, to live a legacy worth living. And I imagine this morning that you're facing some tasks in life too. You've got some resources at your disposal as well. You're in the city because you've got some opportunity. And you're not always sure what to do with that. You know that there is a danger of misliving and you don't want to mislive. And you also will take any word you can from someone who's on the other side of uh, you know, the hill, so to speak. I imagine that you also want to live a life of meaning. And from this story, I find five principles on how not to mislive. I normally don't like these. It sounds like a cheesy website or blog post, like five principles on how to do it. Number five is going to surprise you. (laughs) But actually, in this case, I think number five will surprise you. (laughs) Number one, David says the first principle on how to not mislive is to model transparency. He says, listen to me, my brothers, in verse 3, with his family all around him and my people. It was in my heart to build God a house as a resting place for the ark of the Lord's covenant and as a footstool for, for our God. I had made preparations to build, but God said to me, you're not to build a house for my name, David, because you're a man of war. You've got blood in your hands, son. David's dream was to build this sacred space for the Ark of the Covenant, for for there to be this dwelling place for God to dwell in. He wanted a central place for men and women to meet with God, and now that he's on his deathbed, he realizes, as many people do when they're about to die, oh my gosh, some of my dreams are not going to be fulfilled. Verse 3, David's very transparent about why this is. He's honest about the reason why he won't be the one to actualize his dream. And David says, you see, God told me that I'm a man of war and I have bloodshed on my hands. David's battles helped Israel actually to become a sovereign nation. There's no sin in that. To become a free nation, David had to lead his troops into battle. However, the blood that David had shed was the blood as a result of his own sin, the blood of a man whose wife he had cheated on. He killed a man named Uriah, led him out to die. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, now therefore the sword, David, will never depart from your house because you despised me, God says, and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. A few verses later, God says, the moment you repented, David, God forgave your sin. He forgave the blood that was on your hands. But for this task, this holy task of building a temple, that's going to belong to your son. 
And matter of fact, I'm going to name him Solomon, Shalome, peace, because my dwelling place is the place of peace. And you have been a man of war. God forgave David's sin the moment that he repented, but his blood-stained hands could never build God's holy temple. The temple was to be a place of shalom, a a signpost pointing to the kingdom of God, where we will experience true shalom, peace, with God in God's presence in feasting and rejoicing evermore. The point is here, David isn't a perfect man. He's far from perfect but he isn't plastic either. He's not trying to play games. He's not trying to play church games. He tells his family, he tells his friends, look, here's the reality. I wanted to build God a temple, but it was my own sin that cost me. David's repentant. He's transparent. And that's why he's a man after God's heart. He's not perfect, but he's repentant. You see, connection is what you and I long for. Connection with God and connection with others. And do you know what creates real connection? Vulnerability. I really don't connect with people who are just sharing victory after victory. I don't know the real you. And you don't know the real me. And you know what? When we're in that space, we tend to not, let, not allow God to know the real us because we're afraid. I'm afraid that if you know the parts of me or if God knows the parts of me or if I actually name those parts that are struggling, that maybe God's love will be removed from me. or Maybe you won't want to sit with me. When my girls were little, one of them was shocked to hear me say that I had sinned. And she was like, Daddy, you sin? And there was a moment in that space when I just wanted to say, No, babe. I work hard. Daddy works pretty hard at not sinning. But at this age in their life, they're under no delusion. A couple months ago, I went into a period of sulking for a few straight days. And um, I had some good excuses for why I was doing it, but (laughs) none of them really matter. And I came home, and I was in a pretty pissy mood, And I had been in that kind of mood on and off for a couple of weeks, really. But this time, I spoke harshly to one of my girls. And later, she told Nina that it scared her. That's heartbreaking as a dad. So I went back to her, and I said, baby, I never, ever want to speak to you in a way that scares you. I'm so sorry for speaking harshly to you. And I'm going to promise you that I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give in to sulking for at least one month. (laughs) I had to start small, (laughs) baby steps. Here's the deal. When when I'm on my deathbed, my kids are not going to make the mistake of saying their dad was perfect. But my hope is that they'll say, my dad was repentant. What that means is they won't say, my dad said sorry a lot, and it was filled with empty promises. My dad said sorry, and what it meant was he wanted to change. That's the first principle on how to not to mislive. The second principle on how to not mislive is to not just model transparency, but to cultivate, cultivate humility. You see, there's two phrases in verses 2 and 4 that show us that David had been cultivating humility. David is a king. 
He's often referred to his countrymen as servants. But in verse 2, notice what he calls them. He addresses them as brethren. Just like Jesus, man. Humility has been knocking on the door of David's heart through the Holy Spirit. And apparently, David has answered the door. And you know what's helped David to answer the door? Being honest about his many, many flaws. His life has affected many people. And apparently, David has answered this door because when you look around his table, listen, when you look around David's deathbed, it's not just power brokers, it's not just influencers. There's men and women there who cannot help him advance his cause. Nothing to offer him. People that look decidedly different from him. That's when you know humility is beginning to set in. Most modern studies on leadership show that humility is actually the X factor on some of the best organizations. You know this to be true. Many of you guys are at business school. We think it's the man or woman who grabs life by the throat, grabs people by the throat, produces results, creates fear. Those might be high-ranking leaders. But according to Jim Collins, who did this massive study uh, over the course of many businesses, those are not the top five or what he calls the level five leaders. When he studies the hundreds of companies in his book, Good to Great, he says the best leaders, level five leaders, all possess the same quality, humility. That is, they both have this mixture of personal humility and indomitable will. They're incredibly ambitious, but they're not ambitious for their own gain. They're all about seeing the people around them feel really important and achieving what they want and where they want to go. Why? What is humility? It's hard to codify, right? I think a picture is more helpful than a definition. Because in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis makes a brilliant observation about what gospel humility looks like, the life of Jesus. In chapter on pride, he says, if you were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, you would never come away from meeting them thinking, wow, they were so humble. They would not be always telling you that they were nobody because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. He says, the thing you would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seemed to be totally interested in you. Because the essence of a gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself as one author says, it's thinking of myself less and thinking and being interested in others more. And what Jim Collins says in his book is that humility is a virtue that can be cultivated and it can only be cultivated through self-awareness, through you knowing your own fears, what sparks up with you when you're in the room with other people and the jealousy and the envy and the anger and the fear begins to crop up and you want to tell others why you should be in, in that room. David has a wide-ranging mixture of people at his table and his deathbed. A life well-lived will have the same. And the second phrase that David says is, God chose me as king. The truth is, is that David worked hard. He had a mixture of, yes, elbow grease. He worked hard as a king. 
But at the same time, God chose him. There's nothing you have that hasn't been given to you. You know why? Because the breath that you're going to take after this one is a gift from God. And if I were to say to you, get ready for your last breath right now. Take a deep breath. This is it. That's all you had. You realize what gift life is. Everything you have is a gift. How can you take pride for any of it? The third principle for a life lived well or on how not to live with, live, uh, how not to mislive is to invest generously. You see, in verses 11 through 18, David had set aside a bunch of funds, a bunch of resources to build the temple. All kinds of uh, exotic lumber and granite and all of that stuff that you build houses with that I have no clue what it is. It's all spelled out there in chapter 29. David had stored all of this up for Israel because his, his purpose in life was to build this sacred space where people could connect with God. And because of that, he and the leaders of Israel, they invested in the kingdom. And because they invested in the kingdom, it became this contagious movement where all of Israel said, yeah, that's what matters. They're putting their money where their mouth is. We'll invest in it too. Just this morning, in my daily Bible reading and meditation, I read the story of John the baptizer in Luke chapter 3. And it was interesting to me that there, when John calls his audience to repent because they've mislived, because they've hoarded their treasure, because they've made an idol out of it. Listen, when John calls them to repent, he says, therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. Stop saying, I'm paraphrasing, well, we went to church as a kid. We have Abraham as our father. We're Jewish. I was baptized as a baby. You know, the priest put water on my forehead, so I'm good. When they ask, what then should we do, John? He tells them to give generously towards those in need. He actually says the fruits of repentance is in the way that you give towards others, towards those in need, the way that you invest in God's kingdom. Essentially, he says to those in power, stop extorting the poor. Start using your power for the common good. Then in verse 18, he says, then along with many exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But he really upsets their equilibrium by saying, well, how are you investing your time, money, talent, and resources? Start there. It was very convicting. In other words, real faith, faith requires you, as they say, to put your money where your mouth is. It requires you to invest time, talent, treasure in building for God's kingdom. Not long ago, this is one of the reasons we felt a, a need to raise our income as a church from 10% to 12% to support the work of mission in our city and beyond. And today we get to rejoice for the fact that we are a part of uh, supporting a church being birthed in East Boston. 
We are part of young children who are now into their teen years going to college in India because that's the work that you are supporting as you're giving to God's work and not just in the city, but beyond. Many of you model this already. And I watch in your life, as periodically I watch in mine too, how God blesses you as a result of you investing generously. Doesn't, look, here's the thing. If reality is not the place where you can feel that you can call home, that's totally fine. There's many churches in the city where you can invest. But here's the thing. If you're not investing in God's kingdom, you're missing a whole part of discipleship in your life that Jesus says is actually fruits consistent with repentance. So we as in church are instructed in the Bible to use our time and talent and treasure together. We're called to invest. Why? For principle number four on how not to mislive, which is pursue your kingdom purpose. I really believe that every person in this room has both a mega purpose and a micro purpose. Your micro purpose has probably yet to be discovered for many of you. Your micro purpose is like a sale. But that's the unique talents and gifts and energy and experience that God has given you for vocation in this world on how you serve him and bring life to others. One author says, your purpose is found where your deep hunger, your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. That's your micro purpose. But you and I all have a mega purpose as well. In verses four through six, Solomon's micro purpose is to be king, to be a builder with resources, physical, tangible material. He's to build the temple, and God has uniquely gifted him for that vocation. And through that vocation, he's bringing life into the world. Some of you are builders in here, and you're bringing life into the world by being true to God in the way that he's wired you uniquely. Others of you are teachers. Others of you are in the trade. Some of you are stay-at-home mothers. Whatever your particular vocation is now, that's where you bring life into the world as your micro-purpose. But know that also God has given you a mega-purpose as well. And David says we find our mega-purpose in three particular ways. The first way is, verse 9, he says, As for you, Solomon and my son, know the God of your father. The most important thing that you must hear is this, Solomon. I want you to have cultivate a life of intimacy with God because you could be all about mission, all about serving, all about spreading wealth and resources, but here's the true way that you find your mega purpose. The Father wants to be with you. He wants intimacy with you. He wants to know you. He knows every thought in your mind, every intention in your heart. He wants you just to be still in his presence and experience a, a, a peace beyond this life. Know the God of your father. The word know is powerful. It intimates intimacy, the nearness of God, that God wants to be so close to you. This is the very core of your life. There's times when I feel very hesitant to tell you, like, you know, um, it's important to read your Bible and all that sort of thing, the the spiritual disciplines. But I'm telling you what, all of that, Bible reading, scripture memorization, prayer, it's not intended to be an end in itself. 
It's intended to take you into a place where you sense the presence of God and you are known and loved like you've always desired to be and there's no other way, there's no other human in this world that can give you that. And that has to be cultivated. That's a habit. That's a pattern you put on your phone schedule. Secondly, he says, the way we know our mega purpose or life in God's kingdom is to not just know God, but to serve God, 9b. He says to know God, the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands the intention of every thought. You see, following God's purpose means putting them into practice. And service, then, is an outflow of our intimacy with God, or like we often say, ministry flows from intimacy with God. But it does flow into ministry. A friend of mine leads a church in Queens, New York, and when people are confirmed as members of the church, do you know what they give them? They give them a towel. It's a reflection that Jesus, when he actually is showcasing leadership in the church, he gets down on his knee, he grabs a dirty foot, he takes a towel in a wash basin, and he begins to wash it. And then he says, do you know what I've just done for you? I've given you an example of real leadership. I've given you an example to follow. The Son of Man didn't come to be served. The Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mother Teresa said, we can't all do great things, but we can all do great things. We can all do small things with great love. And St. Francis actually says that his conversion happened when he saw a man with leprosy on the street. And his first instinct when he saw the man with leprosy was to go to the other side of the road, right? Highly contagious, hugely detestable. Instead, he said, I mounted off my horse, or dismounted my horse, and then I ran toward him, and St. Francis kissed him on the mouth and cried with him and prayed over him. And serving the lepers became the source of consolation for him because for him, when he embraced the leper, he was embracing none other than the Lord Jesus. Lastly, not just knowing God and serving God, but seeking God because David tells his son Solomon, if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Realize now that the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. These words speak of devotion, not just personal devotion, although that is what flows into what I'm about to say, because these words speak of commitment. You know, when you enter in, into a relationship with the Lord Jesus, marriage is the closest thing to that. And there's times in marriage when you wonder, man, is this thing going to work? This is hard. This is requiring incredible sacrifice. thought this was the person of my dreams. You're supposed to complete me. <laughs> but the reason why it's a mirror of your faith is because faith is a covenant with the Lord Jesus. And we come together and we partake of the bread and wine. It's that it's, we're being reminded 
It's like rehearsing our marriage vows. Oh yeah, you for me and I for you. My life is yours and nothing else matters. We've made a commitment to each other till death do us part. And when I see you face to face, we'll feast together and it'll all be worth it. Now there's a warning here. How do we understand it? Seek him while he may be found. When can God be found? As long as you're alive. Because many people fear that God is out to get them, but the thing that we should really fear is being left alone by God. That's what the Bible describes as eternal darkness. This is the destination for those who reject God because the alternative to seeking God is abandoning the God who created me, who designed me to live with joy and purpose in this world. See, to forsake God is to choose an identity in the opposite direction that will ultimately leave me wanting more and unfulfilled. And I need these words. You know why? Because almost daily, if for sure weekly, I have to be reminded, you're living backward, Al. Start with the end in mind. Who is it that you want to ultimately be? when you were on your deathbed like David talking to your children, daughters, and sons-in-laws. Ultimately, who is it that you want deeper and stronger than anyone in this world? Well, that's the answer that we find in the final principle. I told you, number five will surprise you. Number five on how not to mislive is to cling to the king's promise. See, David is old in years, his time's about up. David's lived like a warrior and a worshiper, and sometimes his success corroded his soul. It brought incredible suffering to the people that he loved the most. David made decisions as a king and paid terrible consequences for them. And so did his family. To call times in his life a crisis is an understatement, and that's why I find David's words his final words to his son, so interesting. He says, then David said to his son Solomon, son, be strong and courageous and do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged. Here's why. The Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for service of his house is finished. There's a verse probably one of my favorite verses in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you, he'll be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ's return. God is the one who's building a temple, but it's not a temple of building made with hands. It's your life. It's his church. He's building it together for his holy dwelling to reside in. And sometimes we wonder whether God still cares about us when we blow it. Sometimes we wonder, does God still love me when I'm bad? If anyone could ever prove that God still loves you when you're bad and doesn't leave you when you blow it, it's David, a man who committed adultery with another man's wife and then had him murdered, a man who out of pride had seen 70,000 people die under his care. But this shepherd learns something that he knows his son will need to learn. Solomon, son, I want you to listen to me. God is a good shepherd. And when his sheep go astray, he doesn't leave them or forsake them. Every time they turn back, he's with them. In fact, 
Solomon, you're likely gonna be ruled by your ego. And here's the deal, Solomon was ruled by his ego. He multiplied women after women and it said the many wives that he amassed for himself, they turned his heart away from God. He had idols in his home that actually caused him to not leave the same kind of legacy as his dad. But what he can say is, God never left me. God will never forsake me. So with all those questions in mind, David tells his son the one thing that got him through the most difficult times of discouragement, when he was tempted to despair, when he suffered because of foolish and sinful decisions, he says, don't fear. Don't be afraid. Be courageous. Do the work of the kingdom, for God will never leave you or forsake you. He's a great shepherd, so get to work, son. And of course, what comes to mind when you hear these words? These are the words of another king to come. But they're not the, king, the words that he spoke on his deathbed. They're the words that he spoke after he conquered death. And he put it to bed forever. When Jesus came back and was risen from the grave, he went to his disciples and some of them didn't believe. Could this really happen? And he told them, I want you to make disciples of every nation, teaching them and baptizing them in my name. For I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you. No, never will I forsake you. Do you believe that? And that's why it says in Acts chapter 13 in the New Testament, now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him everywhere, uh, through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. And it's because of this sinless work of Jesus that it could be said of David with all his mess and all his mistakes, after removing Saul, God made David their king. And God testified concerning him, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. David left a legacy worth living. He experienced a God so committed, so devoted to him, that even after all of his horrendous failures, he still clung to this idea, God is with me. My Father will never leave me and never forsake me. So how about you and I? What legacy will we leave? Is it a legacy worth living for? How about the legacy of us as a collective church? because we're programmed to come into this building, to come into this room and believe that, ah, it's just about my personal piety. No, when Jesus is building his temple, plural, it's about the communal people of God and how they're joined together in community to serve and affect the world around them with good news. So what's the legacy that we'll be leaving? As we close in meditation and prayer, can we pray that God would leave a legacy through this community? that's worth living for. Because God says, I will never leave you or never forsake you. Thank you, Jesus, for your words to us. You're the perfect king.